All right, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2, so you can grab your Bibles and meet me there, grab your device, your phone, whatever the case may be. We are continuing, plugging along in our series, Apocalypse Now, walking through the book of Revelation, and uh, thanks for bearing with us. Last week, we had a bit of a technical hiccup. One of our computers decided to act up, so that was what happened when the sound kicked out last week. Uh, we were saying afterwards, it's pretty amazing after almost a year of doing this, that that's actually the only Sunday that that's really happened on. We've had incredible consistency and, and success in the technical area uh, due to Pastor Xavier and Brian and Steve and Mike and, and Joseph and all of our great team who've been working so hard to make sure that you have worship at home. If that does ever Ever happen again, if we ever did uh, lose the feed on a Sunday morning or if we ever did have something go wrong, we will still always get the message up. So last Sunday, uh, even once it stopped working, we stayed, we finished off the service and recorded it, and it was up and online by dinner time. And so it is still there uh, if you did miss it. And if we ever do have to go through that again, we will always get the word up somehow. It might not be right on a Sunday morning, but we will get it there. And so if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and check that out. It is all there. So I, um, I turned 40 this year because I am getting older, and it's a weird number to think about. And it wasn't even 40 that was such an unusual number, uh, is that it's also 20 years of pastoring, 20 years of working in churches. And uh, I've pastored at different churches over the last 20 years around Ontario. And I just reflecting on some of that season and just God's faithfulness and how it all came about and how I got there, uh, if I bring myself back to kind of 21 years ago, I didn't have a clue what I was doing in life. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I would be doing. I didn't know if I should go to school or if I should just get a kind of day job or, or what I was going to be doing in any part of my life. And so uh, I went into a season where I just got a job at a restaurant and was working there and was really seeking God. I was really seeking the Lord for why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? What will my career path be? I just honestly didn't have any idea. And so it was a year of uh, fasting, a year of praying, a year of pressing in um, and just being kind of clueless and just feeling like I was kind of struggling along and treading water with no answers. And then as the year unfolded, I began to start to get a bit of a sense that, well, maybe it will be ministry. Maybe that's a door that God will open and taking some time to pray into that and to look into that a little bit. And that feeling began to build. And I didn't really tell anybody about it because I, I think at the time I thought it maybe sounded cocky or, or whatever, but I kept it to myself and I kept wrestling with God and I kept praying into it. And one night, remember we used to have church on Sunday nights as well, not just Sunday mornings. It was a Sunday night service at the church. And the pastor was preaching the message. And he said, uh, just, I forget what the message was about, but for whatever reason that night, he felt compelled to say, we're gonna have some prayer time at the altar after the service. If there's anyone here who thinks you might be called to ministry, who thinks they might be called to be a pastor, uh, I'd like to invite you forward and we'd love to pray for you. And in that moment, I just knew that I was supposed to go forward. I just knew that it just, it all just kind of landed, that that's where God was leading me and that's what I was supposed to do. And so I went forward for prayer that night and I went home and I had said to my parents, and I, again, I had not told them anything about my wrestling match or struggle or anything, but I went to them and said, I really think that God is calling me to be a pastor. And my parents' response was love and encouragement and support. But they also said, oh, we know. And I said, you know? They said, yeah, we've known for a while. And I said, you've known for a while? 
I've been struggling over this last year. I have been praying and fasting and crying out to God. Like, how long have you known? Like, you knew and you just let me struggle along? Like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you encourage me along? And this is where I know I actually got pretty fantastic godly parents, is that their response was, well, because ministry is going to be hard, and there's probably going to be days you want to throw in the towel, and you needed to hear that from God yourself. We didn't want it to be you were going into ministry because your parents said something. You needed to hear from God yourself. So we have been praying like crazy that God would lead you in the way that you should go, and it sounds like he has. And so they were very happy to kind of confirm my sense of God's leading. And at the time, even though in the moment it was like, ah, how could you let me just stumble and struggle along like that? I see the wisdom of it. Of They just said, well, no, you needed to hear that yourself. Right? That couldn't be something that you go into because your parents said something. God needed to speak to you yourself, and I needed to hear from him, this is who I've called you to be, Chris. This is where I have called you to go. And it's true. On the tough days of ministry, I have often thought back to that night at the altar being prayed for and going like, you know what? Even though uh, there are challenges and even though there are very difficult times, I know God called me to do this. I know that he did. And that helps me get through some of the tougher times. And so I needed to hear from him myself on who he was calling me to be. What he said about my life was something I needed to discern. And as we get into our text today, we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. And we're moving through the letters, uh, the specific messages to the churches in the book of Revelation. The whole book was sent to seven churches. We've touched on them briefly. Within this bigger message to all the churches, each church gets a specific shout-out and a specific message from the Lord. And so last week, we talked about the church in Ephesus. This week, we are talking about the church in Smyrna. So starting in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So we talked last week about uh, kind of the structure of these letters, and the structure of these letters is somewhat similar. It's not always exactly the same in each of the seven letters to the specific needs of each church, but Jesus typically introduces himself at the beginning. He typically has some commendation, some encouragement for them. He typically has some correction for them and some warning for them, and then there's typically a reward uh, talked about. And so um, now this church we're looking at today, there are no corrections. There are no rebukes which is interesting, we'll come back to in a little bit. But as we are going through, we understand that these are literal churches that existed in history, in real cities, in a real time, in a real place. They had real struggles. There were real things going on that Jesus is speaking to. And so we understand that we we set these letters to the specific churches in history firmly. 
And yet, we also believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And so our question is, all right, how is this God-breathed word useful for us in 21st century Meadowbrook Church in Leamington, Ontario? And so it is uh, our job as we look at these words to say, all right, where am I in this letter? Where, Where would I be commended? Where would I be corrected? What is Jesus? speaking to me? What is Jesus speaking to us right now through these words? So a little bit about Smyrna. Smyrna is really fun to say. Smyrna. And Smyrna is actually of these cities, the only city that is still a city today. And it's got a new name now, but um, this is a a bit of the ruins of the ancient city, but it's in the middle of a, a bustling city today uh, called Izmir. And so Smyrna uh, is, at the time that Revelation is being written, it's the smallest of the cities, but it's also an incredibly beautiful city. It is known as one of the most beautiful cities in all of Asia. And the motto for the city was the first in Asia. That's what they called themselves. City of Smyrna, the first in Asia. That's got some poetry to it. That's a little nicer than the tomato capital of Canada. It's a little different. The first of Asia. It was very, very beautiful. Uh, it was very, very uh, prosperous as a city, as a lot of these cities were. And it is a city that is firmly in the grip of Rome. And as it is in the grip of Rome, it is firmly in the grip of emperor worship. And so we have talked about uh, the, the Roman culture at that time did not just uh, admire their leaders. They did not just revere the emperor. They did not just honor the king. They actually worshipped the king as God. They believed that Caesar was God come down to the earth. And so this made it very difficult for Christ followers because Christ followers would say Christ is the one that we worship. Christ is God who we adore and worship. And we don't worship Caesar. We can honor Caesar. We can submit to Caesar. But we will not worship Caesar. And so for all of these churches, that is the struggle is that the world is telling them, you must worship the emperor, and they are refusing and saying, we will only worship Christ. And so Smyrna, Smyrna, it's uh, it's just fun to see. You're never going to read it the same again. You're going to hear my voice going, Smyrna, every time. Smyrna had a temple that was dedicated just to worshiping the emperor, where you would go and you would actually offer blood sacrifices, you would bring your money, you would actually offer these things as worship. Smyrna also had a very large Jewish population, and the Jewish population, as is implied in this text, was not friendly to the Christ followers. And the Jewish population had a lot of influence, and there was persecution coming because of that. But for all of these people who are following after Jesus in all of these different cities, the problem is, is that if you don't worship the emperor you will be persecuted. You will pay a price. Businesses will not buy from you or sell to you. So there is a significant financial price to pay for not being willing to worship the emperor. There's a significant uh, persecution price. You might be thrown in jail. You might be beaten. You might be executed. And if you can try and put yourself in their shoes and imagine what it would be like to be under that persecution where it's like, I don't know how I'm going to feed my children because I am not willing to worship Caesar. It is very difficult to be prosperous. It's very difficult to get ahead in life when no one will buy or sell from you, when you are in a place where you cannot do business. It is just very difficult to prosper if you're not willing to do what the world is telling you to do. So these are where the Smyrnan Christians find themselves. And we'll just walk through our verses today, starting in verse 8. 
to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So each of these letters starts with Jesus introducing himself, revealing himself in some way. So we talked about what the angels are last week. You can hear about that in last week's message. We'll jump right to Jesus' words. These are the words. The one talking to you right now is the one who is the first and the last who died and who came to life again. So in Revelation 1, Jesus has already revealed himself as this title, the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last, the A to the Z, and everything in between. And in a lot of these letters, there's little specific kind of shout-outs or little uh, almost inside things that are specific to the city itself. So where Smyrna would say, we're the first of Asia, right? That's our city's title. We're the first of Asia. Jesus introduces himself, actually, I'm the first of everything. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end and I am everything in between. And then Jesus also makes very clear, I am the one who died and I am the one who came to life again. I am the one who was dead, he would say in chapter one, and now I am alive forever and ever. And we always need to be careful, those of us who have been in church for a while, those of us who have walked with Jesus for a while, those of us who know the story very well, that we don't just become so familiar with it that we lose the wonder and the awe of what has happened for us. That God became flesh and God walked among us. And when he walked among us, he did not live a life of luxury or glory that would be befitting a God. He actually lived out the full life experience with us. He was the man of sorrows. He lived a life of pain. He lived a life of suffering. He lived a life of loneliness. He lived a, lived a life of isolation. And when our sins stood between us and God, and when there was no way for us to save ourselves, Jesus came to save us. And he went to the cross for us to deal with our sin. And as our sin gets dealt with on the cross, Jesus dies and then rises again to deal with the problem of our death. And so as Jesus now lives forever, he invites us to come and live forever with him. We used to sing that song, Because He Lives. I can face tomorrow, right? If he's overcome sin and if he's overcome death, then what else really is there to worry about? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. All of our hope is grounded in the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, that death is not the end, that our sin no longer separates us from God, that our suffering is not in vain. Because he lives, our hope is secure. And so for people in Smyrna who are struggling with persecution and, and even you know, jail time coming and, and financial you know, ruin because they will not depart from the Christ-like path, Jesus says, hey, guys, whatever you are going through, remember, I was dead and now I'm alive. And that is where your hope ultimately is. It is in who Jesus is, and it's in what Jesus has done. And the invitation of Christ gone out to the world is come and follow me. Trust me and follow me, and you will follow me all the way into eternal life. Jesus says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And we talked last week that Jesus says to each of these churches, I know you. And there's a lot of hope in that, and maybe it's a little scary in a fear of the Lord sort of way, that Jesus says, I know you. 
I know where you are. I know the good. I know the bad. I know the ugly. I know where you're at. And to the church in Smyrna, he says, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. He's saying, I know your persecution. I know that you are being persecuted because you will not worship Caesar. I know you are being persecuted because you will only follow after Jesus. I know your poverty, that you are paying a price in order to follow after the Lord. I know these things. I see these things. And persecution is one of those things that uh, we're actually promised in Scripture. It's not something that is uh, kind of meant to be a maybe thing. It's something that we're actually promised. Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we are living in a, a culture that's pretty friendly, I mean officially from a government level, pretty friendly towards Christianity. Even as we have gone through uh, the last year of what it means to have churches open and what does that all mean in terms of a, a health crisis and when churches can be closed and when they're open. And, uh, and there are those out there who have felt very strongly that we are being persecuted right now and the government is persecuting us and coming against us. I shared my thoughts on this a couple of months ago. I just don't see it. I don't believe we are being persecuted persecuted. We're not being singled out. We're not being treated any differently than anybody else. Even as we go back into red zone, we're allowed to be open at 30% capacity when lots of businesses are allowed to have 10 people in them, period. Like we've had lots of extra privileges that a lot of places have not had. And so I find it hard to say that we're being persecuted right now. But I was talking to another pastor in town, and this pastor uh, also would agree that we're not being persecuted right now, but he had an interesting conversation with his kids who are teenagers, and one of the teenagers said to their father, well, Dad, okay, so we're not being persecuted right now. Everyone has to shut down. Everyone's being asked to sacrifice. That doesn't count as persecution for the name of Jesus, but she said, why aren't we persecuted? Why are we not persecuted? Like, if we're kind of supposed to be persecuted, why are we not in Canada? Like, in Canada, we have total freedom to express religion. And, and again, there's been some limits this year in the pandemic, but uh, no one's telling us still that we can't talk about Jesus or preach Jesus or share the Bible. Like, that's not being limited. And we get, like, charitable tax breaks from the government. And anytime you give to the church, the government actually gives you some of it back. And so we're actually blessed when we give to the kingdom. And, like, there's so many perks and benefits that we have. We don't pay taxes on anything here. We don't pay taxes on our land. Like, we have lots. And listen, when Paul's writing this, of course, you know, in the world, nobody's friendly to Christians at that time except other Christians. So we're living in a country that is very friendly in a lot of ways to Christianity and to religion in general. But it's still a good question. Like, it's a question that, that should challenge us. Like, why are we not? Right? Because Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. And Jesus also said, the servant is not greater than the master. If they've come after me, they're going to come after my disciples as well. And so if we're never facing persecution anywhere, and I'm not talking about government persecution necessarily, if we're never facing difficulty because of our testimony of Jesus Christ, if we're never uh, being challenged, if we're never paying a price, if we're never uh, getting people annoyed, not because we're trying to be annoying, but because of what we're saying, because if Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil, I mean, that is one of our jobs, is to call sin, sin. So if we're not being persecuted, is it because we're not talking about sin? Or is it because we are putting our, our light under a bushel? We're not sharing Jesus with people because we're worried about what people will think? And, and I don't have clear answers to this other than 
you know, the word of God seems to suggest that persecution should kind of be normal for Christ followers. And, and Jesus would seem to suggest that as well. And so that's just something for us to wrestle with. Why are we not more persecuted? Why do we not have to really pay a price to declare that Jesus is Lord? And so the church in Smyrna is going through this persecution. They are going through this poverty. And Jesus says to them, I see your poverty, but you're rich. And that sounds backwards, right? That doesn't sound the way it should be. I mean, they are literally poor. In real life, they are poor. By any understanding of money, they don't have a lot of money. They are poor. And yet Jesus says, even though you are poor, I'm looking at you and I'm telling you, you are rich. You are rich in every way that actually matters. We did a series here at the church uh, back in the fall of 2019 called The Upside Down Kingdom. And we took some time to talk about just how the way of Jesus is often completely backwards, completely upside down from the way of the world and the way of the culture and the way of even common sense sometimes. And there is teaching in the teachings of Jesus and in the teachings of the apostles that even though it looks a certain way through human eyes, God looks at things very, very differently. When King David was going to be anointed as the next king of Israel, and uh, Samuel goes and is going to meet all the sons. God, he, Samuel doesn't know which one it is. He's just told, go to this house. The next king of Israel is going to be there. And the man there brings out all of his sons. And they're all, they're big and they're strong and they're good looking. And Samuel sees the oldest, the strongest, the good looking one and says, surely that's the king. And God famously replies, no, you are looking at that through your human eyes. God looks at the heart. That is not the one. And it was David, the youngest, who hadn't done anything, who hadn't had any accomplishments. God said, that is the one who is after my own heart. That is the one who I have chosen to be king. And so often in the understanding of the kingdom of God is this, uh, this idea that the things that we think are important are not as important to God. And so we tend to think money is very, very important. And yet for the church in Smyrna, Jesus says you're poor, but guys, you're actually rich. You're rich in faith. You're rich in devotion. We don't know the fullness of it maybe, but you're rich in character perhaps. You're rich in, in, in your commitment. You're rich in your, your devotion to Jesus. In the way that God is looking at it, you are actually rich. In the kingdom of God, you don't get great by climbing the ladder. You get great by lowering yourself. The path to being called great in God's eyes is not to grow and not to become famous. It's to humble yourself. And when we are humble, God says, that's when you're great. When you are poor, God says, that's when you're rich. When you are feeling at your weakest, that's when you're actually at your strongest. And there are all of these ideas that are completely different than maybe what the natural mind will think. But that's where it is so important to say, God, what do you say about who I am? What do you say about my circumstances? Because there are times where I don't feel any strength at all, but Scripture says that's actually when I'm at my strongest because it's not my strength, it's His grace and His strength at work within me. And, and you know, lots of us in life have had times maybe where money is tight or times where money is more plentiful. And if you've ever been through a time where money is tight, you know that in those moments, that's where some of the most transforming character things happen in our lives where we don't have a lot of money, but we are rich in our trust in him. We are rich in our seeking him. We are rich in our prayer life. The first church I worked at uh, never had any money. We were always broke. At any given point, we had maybe $1,000 in the bank. And so we were just living week to week. There were a number of weeks where I didn't get paid because there just wasn't enough money to pay us. 
And man, we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for the finances of that church. And we never had tons, but we always had enough. And God showed up miraculously in so many different ways. And, uh, you know, there's, there's sometimes, I mean, I, I appreciate at Meadowbrook that we're in a better place. But there's times where I miss that devotion that was needed, that trust that was needed. And, and I feel that way in lots of areas of life, that there are times where it's very, very easy just to lean on our own strength instead of God's strength. There's time where it's easy to lean on our own efforts instead of what God wants to do. And there is warning after warning after warning after warning in Scripture towards people who have money. It's there over and over and over and over again in the New Testament in particular. And it's not that money is a bad thing necessarily, but we're warned in Scripture that the love of money is a very bad thing, and it's actually very hard to draw that line. It's interesting that Jesus said mammon, the devotion to money, is the other God that we need to be aware of. And it's easy to say, as many of us would say, like, well, I'm not rich, right? Like, I'm not rich, middle-class Canadian, like, I'm not rich. But by any understanding of the globe right now, and by any understanding of human history, we're rich. Like, we're all rich. I saw something once, it was a calculator from the UN. It said, if you make $40,000 a year Canadian, you're in the top 1% globally. You're in the top 1%. We think of 1% as the Wall Street people, right? The uber wealthy. But globally and historically, if we're a middle-class Canadian, we're in the 1%. And even if we're not in the middle class, maybe we're, we're not making quite that much, but we still have free health care and free schooling and all sorts of services. Like, we live better now than King David lived in Israel's time. Like, we are rich by any stretch. We, are, we would be considered rich, and we are richer than most of the planet. Um, and yet we complain so much right? It's, oh, my stupid phone, stupid internet, stupid car, like all these benefit, luxurious things that we have, and we complain about them all the time. The warnings to the rich in Scripture are for us, because there is something about having that cushion of security that can actually pull us away from God. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. And so even though, yeah, most of us are not rich by Canadian standards, and yes, our standard of living is also higher here, and yes, we do still have money struggles. It's like when you get right down to it, we still have lots. We have a lot more than a lot of people. And, and the word of God says in James, hey, is it not the poor that God has chosen, the poor in the world who are set to inherit the kingdom of God? Like, it's hard. It's hard when you have that level of comfort to, to, to press into God and depend on God in the same way. And so when it comes to our, our living this out, that the church in Smyrna was, you're poor, but you're actually rich. There are riches that are going on in your life that maybe you don't see right now, right? When you are weak, that's actually when you're strong. When you're lower, in God's eyes, that's actually when you're at your highest. And when you're feeling maybe at your most foolish, that's actually wise because God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world at times. And so to understand that when we are in our struggles and when we are in our sufferings, that's when his grace is most sufficient for us to get through. And that doesn't mean we love our sufferings or our trials, but we always just want to fast forward them. Like we just, our, our attitude towards our trials is let's get through them as quickly as we can. And in God's economy, in heaven's perspective, that's when we are being changed and transformed the most. And so as we've talked about, you know, COVID, like how many of us have said, oh, I just can't wait till it's over. Let's just get it over with. Let's just get through this. Let's get it over. 
And I'm trying to very actively say I am certainly praying for a speedy end. But until we get there, Lord, what are you doing in me? Right? What is being exposed here? Uh, Susan on our staff said, you know, COVID is the great exposer. All sorts of stuff is coming up in our hearts and in our minds and in our attitude and in our marriages and in our families and in our churches. Like there's all sorts of stuff that is being laid bare that is ultimately a good thing, even though it's painful. Heart surgery really sucks from what I understand. It's unbelievably painful, but it saves your life. The trials that we go through are sometimes painful, but they are able to bring out things that are ultimately for our good. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul writes, I want to know Christ, not just know about him. I want to know him. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So I want to know Christ. Everyone says, amen, me too. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Hallelujah. Let's write 1,100 worship songs about that. I want to know the participation in the sufferings. Amen? Amen? Worship song? Marissa, write a worship song about that. Participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. There is something, there is something about the suffering. There is something about the struggle. There is something about it that is so crucial to us becoming like him. And becoming like Jesus is the journey we are on, right? We are sinful people who are being transformed. We are on this journey to become more like Christ. And if we are serious about that, and if that's important, then walking and suffering is going to be part of that because Jesus suffered. Because his life was a life of suffering. And so that's where we reframe and redeem what we're going through. Or we say, well, do you feel lonely and isolated? You are Christ-like in that moment because he was lonely and he was isolated. Are you carrying pain in your body? Well, when Jesus went to the cross, he carried pain in his body. You are Christ-like in that moment. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been lied about? Have you ever been slandered? You are Christ-like in that moment. It doesn't mean that it was just what happened to you, but you are Christ-like there. You are entering into his sufferings, and it is being used to transform you into his image more and more with ever-increasing glory. We are like Jesus when we suffer. And so victory looks very, very different. We tend to define victory as, I will be victorious when the trial is crushed under my feet. And in the economy of the gospel, it's no, we are victorious even as we suffer. And even as we suffer, trusting that resurrection is always the end of the story. This will be redeemed. That God is not unjust. That things will be dealt with. Things will be restored. My job is to persevere and keep going. Moving on, second part of verse 9. Jesus says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So, one of the worst advocates of anti-Semitism on earth has been the church of Jesus Christ. We have done terrible things to the Jewish people. In the early days of the church, the Jewish people persecuted us. They were in power and we were a marginalized minority. And then that flipped over time. And as the church became the more dominant religion, they spun it around. Terrible things being done to Jewish people all throughout uh, history. From the time of about 300 on when Christianity became accepted, terrible things have been done. And scriptures like this will be taken 
taken and they will be twisted and people will say, well, see, the Jewish people are the synagogue of Satan, not actually what it says. And we always have to be very, very careful. Uh, for those of us who follow after Jesus, I had a professor in seminary and he did a lot of ministry with Jewish people and he would preach at Jewish temples and a lot of dialogue with Jewish leaders. And he said, a lot of Christians don't even realize the subtlety of how some of it has snuck in there. Uh, where we really do, even in a great scenario, look down on and condemn Jewish people. And we would take an attitude that says, you know what? The Jewish people are the firstborn children of God. They are the apple of his eye. They are the ones that he chose of all the nations of the world. And yes, when it comes to the cross, we are on opposite sides. Uh, you know, Scripture says they are enemies because of the cross. They have chosen not to receive that. And yet, at the same time, we are still called to love our enemies as Christ followers. So even though we would be of a different opinion, they are not to be treated as any less than. They are the firstborn children of God. We're adopted in. We're just lucky to be here. God, in his grace, has opened up the tent wider to let Gentiles in. And that's the only reason that we're here. We're all only here because of grace. And so there is slander coming against the Christ followers in, in this interesting phrasing, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So in the sense of Satan is always anti-Christ. He is always against Jesus. He is always against the kingdom. In that sense, there are Jewish people at this time who are opposing the cross, who are opposing Christians. But it's probably meant in the sense of what uh, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And so Paul's saying in Romans that there are Jewish people who are Jewish by ethnicity, and of course that's real, and they are circumcised, and that's in their bloodline. But in terms of being like a devout Jewish person, a person of faith, it's more than just a bloodline. It's more than just circumcision. It's more than just outward appearance that there are Jewish people who are actually devoted to the Lord and devoted to the law and devoted to the word and are seeking after living a godly life and living a life that pleases the Lord. And so Jesus seems to be saying in Revelation that that's what's happening amongst these Jewish people in Smyrna. If they were really devout and devoted to the word, they would not be treating the Christians the way that they are. And therefore, uh, they are saying that they are Jewish and they are literally Jewish in their ethnicity, but they're not living out the faith of the Jewish people. Moving on to verse 10. So do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So again, this isn't like a jump up and down and cheer sort of message. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Listen, guys, suffering is coming. It is inevitable. You can't avoid it. This is what's going to come to you in Smyrna. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You're about to suffer, but don't be afraid of it. Don't fear it. Don't worry about it. There is a testing that is coming to you right now. You're going to be put in prison. Satan's going to orchestrate that. You're going to go into jail, but this is for your testing. And another great question for us, whatever we are going through, whatever our trial is, whatever struggle we are facing right now, is, Lord, what are you testing in me right now? 
What character are you testing? Is it patience? Is it love? Is it grace? Is it peace? Is it joy? Like, what are you testing in me right now? And where am I hopefully passing the test? And where am I maybe falling short of the test? But now I know I can do better. And so this is coming for our testing. It is coming to see what goes on. We've often used the picture of that refiner's fire, that the heat gets turned up. And as the heat gets turned up to the metal, all of the impurities rise up to the surface. And so when we're in a trial, there is something about it that does make all of our junk rise up. And that actually doesn't need to be a problem as long as we are willing to acknowledge it and look at it and deal with it and repent of it and be willing to humble ourselves before the Lord in it. So Jesus says, some of you are going to get put into prison for 10 days. I've said this before with Revelation. We'll keep saying it. Uh, There's no reason to take that as a literal 10 days. We are very, very, very inconsistent. This is important. We are very inconsistent in how we approach the text of Revelation. Is it a metaphor? Is it supposed to be taken literally? And what we tend to do is we go into it and say, all right, well, that's obviously a metaphor, and this is a metaphor, but that's literal, but that's a metaphor, but half of it is literal, and so we're going to take this literally. It's definitely 1 million percent going to happen, but that part is just more of a symbolic thing, and it's pointing to something, and we're just very, very inconsistent. And so there's a great beast who's going to come out of the sea and demand the worship of the world, and is going to put a mark on everybody's hand and on in everybody's head, and no one will buy or trade with you without that mark. And so we say, well, there's not literally a monster that's going to walk out of the ocean. It's obviously talking about a person of some kind, and usually we would say the the antichrist-like figure. So that part is a metaphor, but the mark of the beast, that part's literal. There's definitely going to be some sort of tattoo. And listen, that's just really bad Bible study to mix the approach that much. Right? This is either a metaphor or it's literal, but we're very, very inconsistent at picking and choosing. So I think when it says you're going to jail for 10 days, that's probably just Jesus saying you're going to jail for a little while. There's an end date to it, and we don't need to camp on the 10 days too much. There is a short period in which you're going to suffer this persecution. But the call upon the Christ follower is the same, however we want to interpret that. Be faithful even unto death. Because Jesus was faithful even unto death. Jesus didn't give up. And even Jesus had a struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? Is there any way this cup can pass me by? Is there any other way? And yet I will still do it if that is your will. Jesus was faithful unto death. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, And then sat down at the right hand of God. So we are to be faithful. We are to not give up. And that's just one of the heartbeats of God in Revelation is don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. Don't give up. And if you do, if you persevere, Jesus says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. So something else about Smyrna, Smyrna, something else about Smyrna is that they were famous for their games. The Olympic games were big, and uh, one of the things that would happen all over the civilized world is they would have their Olympic-type games with marathons and discus and javelin and wrestling and all of these things. So Smyrna was well-known for hosting games, and if you won the game, 
games, you didn't do medals originally. You got a crown, right? You got the, the laurel crown. And that was what you got if you were the victor. So again, in each of these churches, Jesus is kind of tying into their culture a little bit in a way that's very cool and just reminds us, hey, he knows us. He knows this about us. And so he uses a metaphor that would have been very, very real to the people of this church that if you are faithful, if you keep going, if you are victorious, then you will get as your crown eternal life. James would put it this way in James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So that's probably talking about one and the same thing, that your reward, your victory will be life, eternal life. Last verse, verse 11. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Come on up, worship team. We're getting ready to wrap up here. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we've noted, it's what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. This isn't a message just for Smyrna. This is a message for all the seven churches, and I would say all churches, period. So whoever has ears, let them hear. Open your ears, open your mind, open your heart to receive this message. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. It's interesting here that uh, this church gets no rebukes. Jesus doesn't correct anything. Last week to the church in Ephesus, Jesus had said, you've forsaken your first love, but there's no correction for this particular church. So not every church gets a rebuke. Uh, and this one doesn't, and Philadelphia doesn't as well. But let's talk about that second death verse as we wrap up. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What in the world does that mean? We're going to find out later the, word, the term second death is going to be defined for us, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God we will all be measured by whether our name is written in the book of life and we will be measured by the deeds that we have performed in our life. And for those whose name is not written, scripture says they will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So our first death is just our death, our natural death. We, we all will die in this world unless Jesus returns. That's our first death. The second death is to be thrown into the lake of fire, and we will get there eventually. We'll talk about what that means. That's kind of the classic picture of hell, this place of fire. Um, is it a literal lake of fire? Is it an eternal fire? We will get to all of that when we get there. But that is the second death. So for the one who is faithful, for the one who is perseveres, the one who is victorious, they don't need to worry about the second death. That is the blessing of the gospel. We don't need to fear what happens after life. And if you've never made that call to follow Jesus, then maybe today is your day, that there is a hope and a security in Christ where we say, I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I don't need to worry about eternity. I am safe in his arms forever. The one who is victorious does not need to worry at all about judgment day, does not need to worry at all about what comes next next. So we've called 2021 a year of thriving. We want to focus this year on not just surviving, but thriving. Wherever we're at, whatever level or zone or color we're in, we want to learn how to thrive no matter what we are facing. The Apostle Paul said, I've learned how to be content no matter what the circumstances. And so how do we thrive in our testing? How do we thrive in our trials? How do we thrive when we are going through persecution or we are going through difficult times? We've touched on it all throughout. But number one, we say, Lord, what are you testing in me? 
What are you doing in me? What are you trying to expose? What are you working on? Let me see where you are at work. Trials are 100% easier if we can begin to determine what he's doing in us through the trial. And to, just, to take some significant time to talk about it with our loved ones, to be quiet before the Lord, to ask the question, Lord, what are you testing? What are you exposing? What are you doing? Because then we can start to lean into the trial and not just focus on all of the hard parts about the trial. And also to focus on who does God say that we are? What does God say about our circumstances? Right? I feel poor. God says, actually, you are rich. I feel weak. God says, you are strong. I feel lost and alone. God says, you are my beloved child. Who does God say that we are? We can't know that if we're not digging into the word of God where he tells us who he says that we are. But we need to know that and trust in that and be grounded in that. So we're going to wrap up with some worship that digs into some of those things and celebrates who God says that we are. So I encourage you to join us. Sing along on the screen and we will wrap up in prayer in a few moments. <laughs>